Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. This is your host, Pastor Alex, and we are back at it once again with another new episode. Uh, I've been kind of in a uh, a powerhouse, essentially, lately, uh, just producing content galore. Uh, In fact, in the last two days, this will be the third podcast I have recorded, and so uh, over the course of, you know, the, the distribution of these episodes, I'll have kind of the same nasally congestion, uh, even though like the baptismal episode, which I recorded last night for my patrons won't air, uh, for some time in the future, you'll get like, I'll sound probably really nice and good. And then I'll have this episode that's like really nasally. And, uh, yeah, so you have that to look forward to. (laughs) So this week, uh, it's Tuesday, uh, you're getting a fresh Uh, episode in the Lutheran theology, Uh, and we're going to look at uh, just the last bits of uh, part one of the formula of Concord. Part one is titled the Epitone, um, and then part two is Solid Declaration, and we'll dig into uh, that depending on how far we go through today's episode. There's quite a bit here, so we might do this in, you know, a couple more episodes. Again, no time restrictions. There's no, you know, I, I have no means to uh, go so far in depth that I literally read and explain everything in the book of Concord. Or, uh, but but I want to provide it at, 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 at a quick glance that you can read through something and, and just get your quick understanding of it. Um, because it's complex and digging into it can be quite daunting. And so my goal is to just take the complexity simplify it for you and move on about our day. And if you so decide and desire to go back in and read the book of Concord, then by all means, that's the source that I'm using for all this series. Uh, go grab one. You can get a free copy online or you can buy uh, a physical one. It's like 700 pages long. So it's a wee bit of a read, uh, or you can get the digital one, which I love. I'm actually using it right now. And you can, uh, you know, like I can just go from part to part to part in the table of contents. I can just move around as I need to. And uh, it makes navigation very easy. 
So uh, we are uh, continuing our journey through Augsburg. And uh, more importantly, we're looking at kind of the whole Book of Concord. So if you haven't heard the first few episodes in the Lutheran Theology series, I advise you to go back and listen to those. Uh, I haven't said that in a couple of weeks, but I advise you to go back and listen to the history and all the th- events leading up to uh, the Augsburg uh, and the writing of the Augsburg Confession. And then we talk about that. We go through the articles. So we've been in this journey for quite some time together now. And, and I think it just pays well that if you haven't listened to those, go back and please listen to them. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't stress that enough. It helps build context and understanding to where we are now going forward. Like I said, we're going to look at some of these articles today. We'll probably get into part two a little bit, depending on how in depth I, I feel like going. Um, and then we will, uh, pause and pick back up and finish off part two of the formula next week. Uh, and then we've got Luther's small catechism, Luther's large catechism in the uh, small called articles to look at as well. And once we conclude all that, then that'll wrap out our time in the book of Concord. Then we will move on to the sacramental series, which is actively being recorded for my patrons. So they have access to those weeks and probably even a couple months in advance. And uh, those will turn uh, out to the public uh, once we're done with the book of Concord. Uh, coming into Easter season, uh, after Easter, I'm working on lining up a couple guests to come on the show to talk about uh, some interesting topics. I'm not going to name names yet until I get dates and stuff scheduled out, uh, but I am working on a couple big names. I'm pretty excited for it, so uh, keep your eyes and ears open for that. Um, that is kind of all the uh, you know uh, headway I want to give or house cleaning tips. You know, my Tuesday shows don't go too deep into, you know, what's really happening. I usually save that for Friday uh, and, uh, you know, I give you the first, you know, eight or ten minutes of me babbling, but I don't I don't want to do that today. We have a lot to cover and let's dig into it. So we're going to look at uh, Article 9 of the Formula of Concord. Uh, this is Christ's Descent into Hell. Now, this is probably going to offend a few people. Uh, This will probably uh, make some people really uneasy. In fact, there is an episode of A Matter of Truth that Anthony and I recorded, and I think we have since made the decision to uh, remove that recording due to uh, some of the really uh, crazy (laughs) hate that we got for it uh, that talked about the descent of Christ. Did Christ really die on the cross? Was the death necessary? Was the death real? Did Christ die? Did God, the son die on the cross? And some people don't like to, uh, dig into that topic. And some argued very much against us. So I want to preference this with the knowledge that these next four statements of the Lutheran, uh, book of Concord are going to articulate what a confessional Lutheran would believe when it comes to Uh, the descent of Christ at the moment of his death. What actually happened between his death and his resurrection? What did he accomplish? Now, there's a lot of theology that goes into this topic. Uh, And and I think one of the more interesting books that I've read, uh, and I really haven't quite done too much of an in-depth study because there's just not a lot out there. Um, But one is a more recent book. It's called He Descended into the Dead. 
And so I advise you to go pick it up. It's a fantastic read. It's very easy to grab uh, and and work through. I think I read it in just a couple of days. So I advise you to grab it, read it, and, uh, and, and ponder it, dwell on it. You know, and as always, get commentaries, get study Bibles, get, uh, you know, books that deal with the death of Christ. Because the death and resurrection are the two most important elements of the Christian faith. If Christ didn't die and wasn't raised from the grave, then our faith is a folly. And I am very much a proponent that Christ did die. Jesus, the son, did die. And and I, and, and I attribute this to the notion that some people say, well, God ceased to exist then. No, that's not true. Death does not result in a ceasing to exist. The um, <laughs> We're going to get into some really deep theology here, but just bear with me. I'll try to explain it as easy as I can. The hyperstatic union, the uh, divine nature and the human nature of Christ at the death separated. Not at any other time from his conception, birth, life did this ever happen until the moment he died. When Jesus the Christ died on the cross, then the descent of Christ took place. His spirit left his body and went into the underworld and accomplished all of the things that he needed to do. So then at the point of resurrection, his spirit is then reunited into the hyperstatic union between God, the uh, you know, between God, the son, the divine nature and God and Jesus Christ, the human nature. Uh, Deep theology, hard to really articulate properly, and I probably even butchered some of it there, but the hyperstatic union is is an interestingly profound piece of doctrine. Uh, not quite a mystery, but we still don't understand how it really works. There's not a lot of scripture or details around what happens. What we do know is that Christ is fully God and Christ is fully man. So here is what uh, the formula of Concord states. There has been a dispute among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning this article also. The questions raised were, when and how, according to our simple Christian creed, did Christ go to hell? Did it happen before or after his death? Did it occur only according to the soul or according to the deity or according to body and soul, spirituality or corporately? Does this article belong to Christ's suffering or to the glorious victory and triumph? This article, like the preceding one, cannot be comprehended with our senses and reason, but must be attributed or apprehended by faith alone. Therefore, it is our unanimous opinion that we should not engage in dis- disputions according this, to this article, but believe and teach in all of its simplicity, as Dr. Luther of Blessed Memory taught in his sermon, preached at uh, Torga in the year 1533, where he explains this article in a holy Christian manner, eliminates all unnecessary questions, and abolishes all Christians to simplicity of faith. It is enough to know that Christ went to hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and has redeemed them from the power of death, uh, and of the devil, and of eternal damnation, of the hellish jaws. How this took place is uh, something that we should postpone until the other world, where we will be revealed to us not only this point, but many others as well, which our blind reason cannot comprehend in this life, but 
we simply accept. Now, the language is tough because some people don't like to say that Christ descended into hell. Uh, some other theologians, and as I mentioned in that book, uh, attribute to descending to the dead. Uh, that is one, you know, where they would rather say Christ descended to the dead. Uh, but some more traditional, especially in the Lutheran circles, for me, we use the word hell in our Augsburg Confession or in our uh, Apostles' Creed when we, you know, go through that in, in the service. And I, you know, when it comes to it, I don't know if there's necessarily any sort of negativity to which name we use. Uh, what we would say, uh, and, and this is, you know, based upon Jewish teachings, when, um, a, when a person died, they were taken to either whatever you call it, hell or the place of the dead or Hades. Uh, they actually would attribute each uh, one of those three having kind of a different, uh, level, if you would, of hell. Uh, and some of them would attribute that they were just different names for the same thing. When we examine the Jewish his history around this, and we talked pretty in depth, I think, around uh, this on the episode of death that we did a couple years ago, it helps us to start to understand what may have happened. Now, this isn't going to be an episode that's going to dig too deep into this topic or really into it at all. And I encourage you that in your uh, own time, take the opportunity to study this. Look at the Jewish narrative. Look at the historical narrative. Look at the Christian narrative, the early church, and, and how it is uh, that the church understood that uh, the moment of the death of Christ. And, and I want to go back to that earlier point and really just clarify that when Christ died, there was no ceasing to exist. The soul does not just vanish. And I think sometimes people who have a hard time with this you know, notion of saying God died, they, they think that he just ceased to be when in fact he just trans traversed into the spirit realm where God is already present. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so I don't think it's far-fetched to say that God the Son died on the cross. And obviously we see that even articulated in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. And again, you can go back and you can say uh, he descended into the dead. That is okay language to use as well. It's just a, whatever your choice of wordage is. And uh, <laughs> for whatever reason, I now have a way more stuffier nose than I did when I first started trying to record this podcast episode a couple of hours ago. And so I think my cold is starting to get the better of me and I need to get some sleep eventually. So I'm going to finish this out and I'm going to bed, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and uh, so it's a little late at night, um, but, uh, you know, dad duties called and so I had to pause and come back to this. So. Let's get on to uh, the next topic we're going to look at. Um, and uh, uh, let's see. Yeah. So the next topic is church usages called adiaphora or indifferent things. And there's uh, two statements here. 
It says, there has also been a division among theologians at the Augsburg Confession concerning those ceremonies or church usages which are neither command nor forbidden in the Word of God, but have been introduced into the church in the interest of good order and general welfare. Uh, this is a good topic. We may end up finishing out the episode on this particular topic. So we continue. The chief question at the issue of this controversy is this. The chief question has been in times of persecution when a confession is called for and the enemies of the gospel have not come to an agreement with us in doctrine. May we use with inviolate conscience, yield to the, their pressure and demands and reintroduce some ceremonies that had fallen into disuse and that in themselves are in different things and are neither commanded nor forbidden by God. And thus come to an understanding with them in such ceremonies and in different things. One party said yes to this and the other party said no. All right, so we have now this uh, interesting little dilemma set forward, and we're going to talk about the true doctrine here uh, next. But this is something that kind of is peaking up uh, in, in the church. And so I think I mentioned it just very briefly last week. Uh, Audiophora uh, just means indifferent things. It means it's not really important whether we do it one way or the other. Um, and, and, and this is uh, an argument, eh, conversation, if you would, that we've had in my church uh, over some various things. You know, do we do this to the bulletin? Do we change this? Do we add this element to worship? Do we you know, uh, paint the walls blue. I mean, it, it, none of that stuff ultimately matters. What matters is as long as we stick to the traditional Lutheran doctrine for worship, the liturgy, uh, and we uphold the divine service and, uh, the word and the, and the sacraments are administered. That's what matters, but the color of the carpet doesn't, um, and uh, I, I really, you know, it's been a while since we've had this conversation in the church, but uh, I remember telling somebody, I'm like, this is about as, <clears throat> excuse me, this is about as, uh, you know, worthwhile to me as talking about the color of urinal cakes in the men's bathroom, because it just doesn't matter. And we're, we're you know, everybody's getting, you know, so worked up over something that ultimately doesn't matter. And, and I'll tell you. You know, being probably now a few months since this conversation has been had, and I don't even remember what it was about. It was it was that, you know, it was important in the moment, but that moment has now moved past, and we have other things to deal with. And so, when it comes to the Adi offer stuff, it's a it's it it really starts to put a weight into uh, the pastor and the church staff. And uh, those individuals. And what it's really calling forward is, are these certain ceremonies, whether it's a, a particular feast or, um, you know, maybe the understanding of uh, the allowance of something inside the church, as long as scripture isn't forbidding it or commanding it, it doesn't matter. You can do it or not. I, I you know, I... I particularly will wear a robe when I preach. Uh, and then I have what's called a stole that goes over. It's like a big sash that goes over my shoulders. Uh, and, and I know, and, and I 
don't know all the names for the different robes, but I know there's more elaborate robes for like, you can call it high church. And I know that there's different liturgies to use and more in-depth liturgies and longer liturgies to use. Multiple pages. Ours is like, you know, three to four pages max. Uh, these are like five to eight or ten pages long of just continual back and forth between the preacher and the congregation. And whether you construct your service in any fashion, again, as long as the word is being preached, the pre- you know, and and I have you know my my views on how we will do uh, the service, uh, and actually that will be a topic we cover in this series is the Lutheran worship. Uh, but really, <clears throat> to kind of highlight those, the first key thing to really consider for the Lutheran service is we open with a brief order confession. We open with the acknowledgement that the congregants are sinners, <clears throat> and then they receive forgiveness via the promise of Christ and coming through me as the preacher is the reminder. I'm the voice of scripture. I am preaching what Christ has promised, providing that reminder to the audience because as Luther says, I need to hear this every day because I will forget it. I need to hear the gospel every day because I forget it. So here's the affirmative thesis, uh, the correct true doctrine and confession about this article. To settle this controversy, we believe, teach, and confess unanimously that the ceremonies or church usages, which are neither commanded nor forbidden in the word of God, but which have been introduced solely for the sake of good order and general welfare, are in and for themselves no divine worship or even part of it. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of precepts of man, Matthew 15, 9. We believe, teach, confess that the community of God is locally and every age has authority to change such ceremonies according to circumstances, as it may be most profitable and edifying to the community of God. But this matter, all frivolity and offenses are to be avoided, and particularly the weak in faith are to be spared. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9-13 and Romans fourteen thirteen. We believe, teach, and confess that in the time of persecution, when a clear-cut confession of faith is demanded of us, we dare not yield to the enemies in such and different ways, as the Apostle Paul writes, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit to the again to the yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1. Do not be mismatted with unbelievers, for what fellowship has light with darkness, 2 Corinthians 6.14. To them we do, <coughs> do not yield submissive even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Galatians 2.5. In such a case, it is no longer a question of indifferent things, but a matter uh, but a matter which has to do with the truth of the gospel, Christian liberty, and the sanctifying of public idolatry, as well as preventing of offense to the weak in faith. In all of these things, we have no concessions to make. But we should witness an unequivocal confession and suffer in consequences what God sends us and what he lets the enemies inflict on us. We believe, teach, and confess that no church should condemn another because it has fewer or more external ceremonies not commanded by God, as long as there is a mutual agreement in doctrine in all of these articles, as well as the right use of the holy sacraments 
according to the familiar axiom, disagreement and fasting does not destroy agreement and faith. So uh, that is <coughs> the uh, affirmative thesis. We'll look at the anti-thesis in a moment. Uh, but I find it to be interesting as I, you know, really kind of harp on this topic. Um, we, you know, our church doesn't do a ton of like, you can call it ceremonies. Uh, we'll, we're going to have our little profession procession on Palm Sunday where the kids will come down and they'll bring the palms down and, you know, they'll lay them at the, at the altar and it's cute and it doesn't change, <laughs> you know, anybody's, you know, level of faith. It, you know, what it does is it, is it reminds people that the, or it should remind them the imagery of what Jesus experienced when he walked and entered Jerusalem, that people were laying down, you know, pine, uh, palm branches, uh, before him as he enters the town. That's why they call it Palm Sunday. And for Reformation Day, uh, our church has a tradition, uh, of a, uh, harvest day. And so we will celebrate the harvest and we will have, a little kids program and afterwards we'll have a big potluck Christmas morning after our sunrise service, we will partake in a Swedish breakfast. And, uh, there's about, I think we had 22 people last year join us and we had some delicious breakfast foods at like six o'clock in the morning. It was amazing. We did a whole little candlelight service. Absolutely beautiful. And whether other churches do these things, doesn't matter but you can't harp on you know me or i can't harp on them for doing or not doing what we do as long as we all agree on the most central tenets to the christian faith that being the nature of jesus christ so here's the antithesis uh this is the false doctrine concerning this article Therefore, we reject, condemn as false and contrary to God's word as the following teachings. That human precepts and institutions in the church are to be regarded as, in themselves, divine worship or part of it. When such ceremonies, precepts, and institutions are forcibly imposed upon the community of God as necessary things in violation of the Christian liberty, which has made it and which has it in external matters. That in a time of persecution, when the public confession is required, one may make concessions to or come to an understanding with the enemies of the Holy Gospel, which serve to impair the truth in such indifferent things and ceremonies. When such external ceremonies and indifferent things are abolished in a way which suggests that the community of God does not have the liberty to avail itself of one or more such ceremonies, according to its circumstances, as it may be most beneficial to the church. So that's the Adiaphora topic. And again, it's an interesting one to uh, kind of pick through and and to uh, really try to articulate. Um, But we spent enough time there, and uh, I want to get these next two out, at least and finish out part one for today's episode. So we're going to look at, uh, this next one's a little bit long, but uh, we're only going to look at a couple statements. It's God's external foreknowledge and election. And uh, then we're going to look at other factions and sects which have not committed themselves to the Augsburg Confession. That should be fairly short. So here is the statement on God's eternal foreknowledge 
and election. No public dissension has developed among theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning this article, but since it was such a uh, comforting article when it was correctly treated, we have included an explanation of it in this document. At least at some future date, offensive dissension concerning it might be introduced into the church. And so they have the affirmative thesis, and then they have the antithesis. And uh, the affirmative is 15 statements long, so it's not terribly long, but uh, we'll read through some of this. Uh, the antithesis is uh, another, uh, looks like eight statements long. So, uh, and we got some time, so let's see what we get here. So the affirmative, to start with, the distinction between foreknowledge and eternal election of God is to be diligently noted. God's foreknowledge is nothing else than that God knows all things before they will happen. As it is written, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made it known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, Daniel 2.28. This foreknowledge extends alike over good people and evil people, but it is not a cause of evil or of sin which compels anyone to do something wrong. The original source of this is the devil. In man's wicked and perverse, perverse will, neither is it the cause of man's perdition, for a man himself is responsible. God's foreknowledge merely controls the evil and opposes a limit on its duration, so that in spite of his intrinsic wickedness, it must muster to the salvation of his elect. Predestination or eternal election of God, however, is concerned with only the pious children of God in whom he is well pleased. It is a cause of their salvation, for he alone brings it about and ordains everything that belongs to it. Our salvation is to be firmly established upon it and that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. Matthew 10, 28 or Matthew 16, 18, John 10, 28. We are not to investigate this predestination in the secret counsel of God, but it is to be looked at in his word where he has revealed it. The word of God, however, leads us to Christ, who is the book of life, in which all who are to be eternally saved are inscribed and elected as it is written. He has chosen us before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1.4 This Christ calls all sinners to himself and promises them refreshment. He earnestly desires that all men should come to him and let themselves be helped. To these he offers himself in his word, and that it it is his will that they hear the word and do not stop their ears or despise it. In addition, he promises the power and operation of the Holy Spirit and divine assistance for steadfast and eternal life. Therefore, we should not judge this election of ours to eternal life on the basis of reason or God's law. This would either lead us to reckless dissolution or a Epicurean life, or drive men to despair and weaken dangerous thoughts in their hearts. As long as men follow their reason, they can hardly escape such reflections as this. If God has elected me to salvation, I cannot be damned. Do as I will. Or if I am to not elected into eternal life, whatever good I do is of no avail. Everything is in vain in that case. We must learn about Christ from the Holy Gospel alone, which clearly testifies that God has co-signed all men to disobedience and that he, and that he may have mercy upon all, Romans 11.32. 
and that he does not want anyone to perish, Ezekiel 33, 11, and 18, 23. And that everyone should repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 6, 1 John 2, 2. The doctrines of God's election, of his eternal election, is profitable and comforting to the person who concerns himself with the revealed will of God and observes the order in which St. Paul follows in the Epistle of Romans. Here he directs men first to repent, to acknowledge their sins, to believe in Christ, to obey God, and only and only then does he speak of the mystery of God's eternal election. The passage, many are called but few are chosen, does not mean that God does not desire to save everyone. The cause of condemnation is that man either did not hear the word of God at all, but willfully despised it. It hardened their ears and their hearts, and thus bar the ordinary way for the Holy Spirit, so that he cannot walk in them, or they do not hear the word, or they cast the wind and pay not, pay not attention to it. The fault does not lie in God and his election and his own wickedness. Furthermore, we are to put forth every effort to live according to the will of God and to, con- not, and to conform our call, as St. Peter says. Especially, we are to abide in the revealed word, which cannot and will not deceive us. This brief exposition of the doctrine of God's eternal election gives God his glory entirely and completely, because he, out of pure grace alone, without any merit of ours, saves us according to the purpose of his will, nor Will this doctrine give anyone occasion either to despise or despair or to lead a reckless and godless life? So there are some antitheses which are rejected. I know we're a little over our time, uh, but I want to wrap this up as quickly as possible because I want to get through, as I mentioned, uh, this this part, uh, part one of the um, formula. So I'm just going to read a couple statements here from the uh, false doctrine. So. Here we go. Accordingly, we believe and maintain that if anyone teaches the doctrine of a gracious election of God to eternal life in such a way that disconsolate Christians can find no comfort in this doctrine but are driven to doubt and despair, or in such a way that the impotent are strengthened in their self-will, he is not teaching the doctrine according to the will of God or the word, but in accord to his own reason and under the direction of the devil. Since Everything in Scripture, as St. Paul testifies, was written for our instruction that by steadfastness and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Therefore, we reject the following errors. The doctrine of God, uh, the doctrine that God does not want all men to come to repentance and believe in the gospel. Furthermore, the doctrine that God is not serious about wanting all men to come to him when he calls us to him. Furthermore, that God does not want everyone to be saved, but merely an arbitrary counsel, purpose, and will without regard for their sin. God has predestined certain people to damnation so that they cannot be saved. We reject that. Likewise, it is that it, likewise that it is not only the mercy of God and the most holy merit of Christ, but that there is also within us a cause of God's election on account of which he has elected us to eternal life. These are all blasphemous and terrible errors. They rob Christians of all comfort that they have in the Holy Gospel and the use of the Holy Sacraments. Hence, they should not be tolerated in God's church. 
There is a belief in simple explanation of the various articles, which for a time the theologians of the Augsburg Confession have been discussing and teaching mutually contra- uh, in mutual contradictory terms. From it, under the guidance of the Word of God and the plain catechism, every simple Christian can understand what is right and what is wrong. Since we have not only set forth pure doctrine, but have also exposed the contrary errors in this way to the offensive contra- controversies have developed to receive a basic settlement. All right, so that takes care of uh, God's eternal election. Um, I was just kind of looking ahead here at my notes for the other factions uh, which have not come to the Augsburg. Uh, it's it's a little long. Uh, it's got uh, 40, 31 statements in here, uh, and I think we're just going to kind of breeze over this. Uh, we won't look at everything too indefinitely. I do want to read um, these couple first statements and then we'll conclude part one here. Uh, so we've got, uh, again, other factions and sects which have not committed themselves to the Augsburg Confession. In the preceding explanation, we have made no mention of the errors held by these factions, but least as a result of their of our silence, these errors are attributed to us. We wish here to end merely and enumerate the articles in which they err and contradict our repeatedly cited Christian creed and confession, the heirs of the Anabaptist. The Anabaptists have split into many factions, some of which teach many errors, others teach fewer, but in general they profess doctrines of a kind that cannot be tolerated either in the church or in the public and secular administration, or in domestic society. Errors that cannot be tolerated in the church, that Christ did not assume his body and blood and blood from the Virgin Mary, but, bought, uh, but brought them with him from heaven that Christ is not true God and that he only has more gifts of the Holy Spirit than any other person that our righteousness before God does not consist wholly on the unique merit of Christ, but in the renewal and our own pious behavior for the most part, the, this piety is built on one owns individual and self chosen spirituality in which fact is nothing else than a new kind of mockery. And then there's some more uh, articles that they reject here. Uh, intolerable articles to uh, in the body politic uh, cover some issues with the government. Uh, there's some stuff with the domestic. Uh, and then there looks like this, uh, this uh, group here that they target. Um, and then they've got uh, the Arians and then the anti-Trinitarians. And so they uh, articulate against these errors. Uh, and so that's going to be, you know, like I said, a quick breeze. We're not, we didn't touch all of it and there's a lot more here. It, just as there is so much more to the book of Concord than what we've really talked about on the show. There's some other great Lutheran podcasts out there that are actually going through the Augsburg in fine detail. They're taking a magnifying glass over the text. I'm just doing this as kind of a, uh, bonus series, if you would, uh, you know, an extra episode to keep your, uh, keep you entertained. And, and I'm doing this to, uh, just articulate the Lutheran faith. I'm not doing a deep dive into the book of Concord. So I advise you again, as always go out, grab a copy and get it for free online, read it and, and, and see what else is out there. Brace, you know, go out and embrace the fact that you get to learn something new today. So that's going to wrap it up. Today, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for hanging with me for a little bit longer than normal. 
we are going to uh, work out on part two uh, next time we meet uh, on the solid declaration and we're going to um, see how far we get with that there looks to be 12 articles there so we might do six and six and do two episodes on that as well uh, so that will take care of us until Friday when we will be back with our uh, next episode. I believe it will be on the outline in different psalms by the time this episode airs. So until uh, then, have a great week. God bless. Thanks for tuning in. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.